Yo, what's up? It's another episode of Real Sankara Hours. Real Sankara Hours. Follow us at Sankara Hours on Twitter. Uh, today is July 8th, 2020. And uh, it's another free episode for y'all. We're going to be talking about... Um, we got takes today. Takes and receipts. Yeah, takes and receipts, but mostly, mostly talking about um, s- statues, uh, r- protesting statues and shit like that um and other stuff but we're gonna be focusing a lot on that um again follow us at Sunkar hours on twitter and this is a free episode if you like this content subscribe for five dollars a month you get bonus episodes so double the content for five dollars a month um donate to us on patreon.com so patreon.com slash real Sunkar hours um again that uh that's patreon.com slash real Sunkar hours I'm Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson Five on Twitter. And this is Peter M Gun. Follow me at M Gun Peter, um, where all the discourse has been happening over the past week, uh, and we've got a lot of discourse to get into. But uh, where should we start? I I will bring up a story that uh, is c- close to home. Uh, this place called Martinez, California, which is like. 15 minutes away from where i live uh uh anyway so for those of you you're probably familiar but there was um a mural it was a mural that was permitted by the city of martinez outside of the uh courthouse it was a black lives matter mural that was um painted on the uh on the street in front of the i think i think it was the courthouse and um these two white people these maga chud dipshits um, their names are, uh, hold on, let me, let me get their stupid names. Um, wait, where the fuck? <laughs> hold on, I'm trying to find their, uh, oh, here we go, okay, yeah, so, 42-year-old Nicole Anderson and 53-year-old David Nelson, both Martinez residents. So, th- there's a video of Nicole, uh, painting, so the, the font, the font color for the mural for the Black Lives Matter mural was in letter, and so she got some black paint and painted over it, which was kind of weird because like, oh, you're just gonna change the font to uh, black. I guess she thought that the paint would match with the concrete. Black but on anyway, black looks hella sick though. So yeah, I mean, maybe it's they're a- trying to improve it. Yeah. So anyway, so there's a video and like you know. They they were Trump supporters. One of the guy was had like a fucking Trump shirt, and just stupid shit. Just generally looked like a stupid piece of shit. Um. Anyway, so the uh, Contra Costa County DA's office charged them with a hate crime. Um. I'm not really like you know, I'm not really a huge fan of like DA offices and the 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 the, the, the prosecutors and whatnot but i'm kind of like whatever (laughs) i don't really care but here's what else happened is three days um after because the issue is that like the the mural was actually permitted by the city so that's why the the da was willing to step in it's like um but so after that this is probably around today is wednesday so around late monday night or early tuesday morning um, in the same city, Martinez, there was a White Lives Matter, uh, fucking, I think it was like a painting. Yeah, it was painted on a road, White Lives Matter. With this, this comes days after the 
the Black Lives Matter mural thing. Um, so, yeah, and and I mentioned this because I've I've been to Martinez a lot, mostly for open mic performances. There there was one bar um, that actually had a really good open mic that I used to go to, but that bar went out of business last year. Um, but I do know that like in that area where that Black Lives Matter mural was at, it was in downtown Martinez, and in that area there's a biker bar called New Rays, and New Rays has a reputation for basically being a safe haven for white supremacists and Nazis. And if you look at their Yelp on their Yelp reviews, uh, there are a lot of people who've said that like basically you know, if you're if you're a person of color, if you're not white, then um, some really fucked up shit will happen to you. Like I've heard, like I've uh, yeah, like they've they've heard just bad stories. So um, that's why I am not surprised <laughs> that um, one this white lives matter painting was done, and that the Black Lives Matter mural was uh, defaced. Um, this this to me seems like part of the course for a city like martinez um Fuck but anyway martinez. let me also say uh that's a two live crew song that's great um but let me Wait, also say new race or no the song's called Fuck martinez oh nice um but it's about it was about the a da that was trying to charge them with obscenity back in florida um sorry for the sidetrack whatever you bring up martinez i think about that but also, I think that uh, white lives matter is just like white people really do have to steal everything, even when they're doing racism. I mean, mm-hmm. can't you come up with your own hate-filled slogans? Like Jesus Christ, y'all! It's so it's so dumb, and that's just you have to remember that we like the people that do this shit are the ones that like weren't are the ones that really wanted to do racism but weren't competent enough to be able to join the government. Because um, if you really want to do racism, that's what you do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is. There is some better news out from Columbus where um, Columbus police police are removing, quote unquote, abolishing 22 officers from city schools and the Columbus City Schools uh, board voted to not renew the uh relationship with the police department but the officers are still going to keep their jobs so it's Hmm. a it is a victory um for for that movement because there are a lot of people pushing for that stuff um for quite a while actually but um (laughs) um but it is but apparently the sub suburban schools that have uh that have cop contracts they'll they'll keep them on of course um naturally but it is you know it's good um but it is incomplete like all of our victories um and there are a couple other ones um in different Mm -hmm. movements as there's been a resurgence of indigenous resistance um and movement as these things do tend to kind of accompany one another there have been some good victories in that in the atlantic coast pipeline uh, which was on the East Coast, and but also uh, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline was a product of Dominion Energy and Duke Energy, like these huge 
you know, whole uh, gigantic uh, conglomerates. But also Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, both were ordered to shut down. And the Keystone XL, that was, you know, one of the more famous ones, um, was also the uh, the rejection of the permit was upheld. So that's all good, though the Supreme Court also, like, approved 70 other pipelines. So, you know, don't be be on guard for when the, uh, the ruling class appears to be giving out concessions because it can you know, often a company, they're often incomplete and not quite what they look like they are. But, you know, another form of indigenous, indigenous resistance has been calling for the removal of Mount Rushmore. And uh, it is a long time coming, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I also want to mention, um, j- just, just quickly, I mean, like, uh, before, um, before I forget, before we get into the meat of this episode but if you had not heard so there was a lawsuit by brianna taylor by the way brianna taylor's killers are largely still free so justice for brianna taylor um her lawyers have uh filed a lawsuit and have alleged that um the shooting of brianna taylor was part of a uh major gentrification makeover in louisville kentucky um the Basically, the this is the Courier Journal says that lawyers lawyers for Taylor's family allege in court documents filed in Jefferson Circuit Court Sunday that a police squad named Place Based Investigations had deliberately misled narcotics detectives to target a home on Elliott Avenue, leading them leading them to believe they were after some of the city's largest violent crime and drug, drug rings. The complaint, which amends an earlier lawsuit filed by Taylor's mother against the three Louisville officers who fired their weapons into Taylor's home, claims Taylor was caught up in a case that was less about a drug house on Elliott Avenue and more about speeding up the city's multi-million dollar Vision Russell development plan. Um, yeah, that, sounds about right. That's, yeah. That's, gentrification has been a big reason for militarized police responses um gotta pacify the the locals and remove them Mm -hmm. um so that you know new white settlement can come in it's a very old story and i mean and this also ties into the the indigenous resistance um against uh dapple and and mount rushmore like the Police violence against black people and indigenous people as well. Let's, let's not forget that because um, indigenous people, uh, uh, even though in terms of share of the population, they're a lot smaller than than the black population in terms of the rate of police violence. They they're they they're killed at the highest rate, and yeah. then right below are are black people. But it's all part of the same um, settler colonial project, basically. So. Or using of violence, <laughs> right? Exactly. So using police as a um, as a spear for gentrification uh, ties in with the ongoing settler colonial project and theft of uh, indigenous land. So uh, the on at surface level, these issues may seem like they're separate, but they really are part of a uh, of a deeper colonial racist system. So. Um, I wanted to mention that before I forget because I felt like that um, I feel like that aspect of 
Breonna Taylor's case. Uh, I heard it briefly mentioned, but I don't think it, it got it's getting enough. I don't think it's getting enough press as it deserves because that's a pretty serious. That's a pretty ser- serious allegation, but I wouldn't be. I would not be surprised, honestly. I I believe. Oh it. no. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. No. See, that happened exactly in Columbus, where the pla- the short north used to be considered quote unquote gang territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's got, you know, not even like interesting boutiques. It's in like the last stage of gentrification where all the like chains and shit are moving in. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that, and that all happened in the course of like 30 years. So it's not, yeah, I would 100% believe that. Yeah. So let's, yeah, let's get into, let's get, yeah, let's get into Mount Rushmore. So, uh, Peter, you got some receipts, right? Um, they are not specifically about Mount Rushmore. They're about other things. But I will say about Mount Rushmore, well, I suppose receipts in the sense of, like, Mount Rushmore is A, trash, B, ugly as fuck to look at. Like, if you look at a, uh, like, those hills, the Black Hills, are, like, one of the most sacred parts of, like, all of Turtle Island. And Americans, white Americans, in their infinite narcissism were like, yeah, let's cut some, like, faces into it. But if you ever see, like, an aerial picture of it, you'll notice how small it is and how, like, it's not the kind of, like, you know, manifest destiny, like, man just is master of his environment type thing that you would think, you know, from pictures. And also from people who have been there, which I haven't, and don't really have many plans to, unless I was on a lot of drugs. But um, <laughs> it is... It is like, yeah, it's uh, it's ugly, it's gross. They put Teddy Roosevelt on there, which was just like, yeah, in the eighteen nineties, that was like one of the hot people, I guess. But also the guy who you know built it, uh, Gustav Borglum. I don't know if that's his first name. He's from Denmark. He uh he ended up joining the clan and also helped build uh, Stone Mountain. The He's carving into another mountain, this time a monument to the Confederacy. So that's the real history of Mount Rushmore. And it, like, I don't necessarily know from a geological perspective how you get rid of it, but um, it needs, you know, just one, it's one small step on, like, allowing this planet to heal from the damage America specifically has wrought on it and this land. Um, But... Um, yeah, and this is coming on the heels of like basically throughout the country. So a lot of statues of Christopher Columbus are coming down, thankfully. Um, in uh, San Francisco, um, at least this is at Golden Gate Park. Yeah, so the uh, statue of Junipero Serra was basically destroyed. Expl- at- explain for the non Californians who Junipero Serra is and why. All Californians know who he is. Well, okay, so if you grew up in California, like I did, you're supposed to do these dumb little mission projects. You have to build a mission and like, oh, look at the... The, re- the reason why there's so many missions throughout um, California is because because of genocide. And so, um, yeah, so Junipero Serra is basically... Um, he was one of the architects of that. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, yeah, he, he really a, got his hands dirty. Yeah, he he was a Roman Catholic uh, Spanish priest and friar of the Franciscan Franciscan order, and he founded a mission in um, in Baja California. And so, 
Um, yeah, like, I mean, he, I mean, he, he is Sarah, like a lot of these priests felt as there, it was his duty to save the soul of Native Americans. But, um, I mean, mostly through violence and yeah, it was mostly also through viol- assault. Also, I mean, the more fundamental thing is why have statues honoring these these people as honorable figures in a in, not just in California but th- throughout the country. So it's not just Hunebro Sarah. I mean, also in, in Princeton University, um, they stopped naming. I think it's their public public policy school. Uh, they used to name it after Woodrow Wilson, and they stopped. They finally they got rid of that. Which I thought I was kind of surprised. I didn't think they would go after Woodrow Wilson like that. But but like so you know obviously some of the um, yeah. <clears throat> Michael Tracy leftists. Um, um, Michael Tracy's not a leftist. He's just a piece of shit. Yeah, but yeah, but it, it, people like him were like, oh, like why why are you getting rid of the uh, Woodrow Wilson? And like so because Woodrow that, Wilson screened Birth of a Nation at the fucking White House. That's yeah, why. so was, he was Woodrow Wilson was an arch segregationist, but also, um. The Palmer raids, which basically yeah. went after and suppressed labor activists and leftists, yeah. that was under Woodrow Wilson. So yeah. even if like if if you have like any kind of remotely progressive politics, that should bug you yeah, about I, Woodrow Wilson. There's a, like if you're progressive and have any kind of like progressive inklings, standing for Woodrow Wilson is not a good look. Yeah, and, and Wilson is Wilson's a bit of a. Uh... He's he's well no he's the most perfect representation of white liberalism because mm-hmm. he was like the only like president with a doctorate he was very educated like the people who loved Obama they would have loved Wilson because um, he yeah he was very professorial he's very idealistic he founded the League of Nations um, I believe famously Ho Chi Minh wrote a letter to Wilson um, kind of explaining yeah the, uh, mm-hmm. kind of explaining the colonial situation in Vietnam believing that wilson would uh would lend a sympathetic ear um he was part of the kind of period when america was able to delude itself that it was somehow against colonialism even as it was massacring people in the philippines that it had inherited colonial control over from the spanish in the spanish-american war Mm. um a lot of contradictions a lot of you know well, anyway, yeah, so I found an article, um, to, to explain more about Junipero Serra, uh, there's a really good article in the Guardian that came out September 23rd, 2015, uh, entitled, Junipero Serra's Brutal Story in Spotlight as Pope Prepares for Can- Canonization. Um, so yeah, like, uh, if you grew up in California, you have to do, like, these little stupid projects to sort of, uh, build these miniature missions there's all these Spanish missions that are dotted throughout California, um, and they all have they, the the myth is that like oh like there are these missions and they're you know sent here to spread, um, uh, help the Native Americans and da 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 like it's 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 very it's a very very sanitized, uh, portrayal of how the missions were. So this article talks about uh, Junipero Serra's leadership and uh, what the missions actually did and. You know the kind of atrocities that Sarah himself is responsible for. So it says, 
under Sarah's leadership, tens of thousands of Native Americans across Alta California, as the region was then known. And by the way, so like, so California, so there's a state of California, but at the time in the 1700s, it was called Alta California, which is Upper California, and then Baja California is Lower California. So present day, Baja so Alta, California. Is, yes, that's yeah. in Mexico. Yeah, so that's basically the Baja Peninsula is is in Mexico. So. At the time, b- before California became admitted into the to the Union, it was still part of the Spanish Empire. So there's Alta California and Baja California. So across Alta California, as the region was then known, were absorbed into Catholic missions, places set by one particularly rapturous mythmaker in the 19th century to be filled with song, laughter, good food, beautiful languor, and mystical adoration of the Christ. What this rosy view omits is that these natives were brutalized, beaten, pressed into forced labor, and infected with diseases to which they had no resistance, and the attempt to integrate them into the empire was a mis- miserable failure. Um, opponent, opponents point out that from the time Sarah arrived in 1769, the native population was ravaged by European diseases including syphilis spread by marauding Spanish soldiers. Indians brought into the missions were not allowed to leave, and and if they tried, they were shackled and severely beaten. They were used as forced labor to build out the mission's farming projects. They were fed, they were fed atrociously, separated from close family members, and packed into tight living quarters that often became miasmas of death and disease. When the Native Americans rebelled, which they did on at least two occasions, their rebellions their rebellions were put down in brutal fashion. When Native American women were caught trying to abort babies conceived through rape, the mission fathers had them beaten for days on end, clamped them in irons, had their heads shaved, and forced them to stand at the church altar every Sunday carrying a painted wooden child in their arms. So this is who Nepro Sarah was and what he represents, what the missions represent, and what statues honoring him, what they're honoring. Yeah, there's more than just statues. There's still Unipro Sarah Boulevard at our alma mater. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a lot of um, just places named after him. Um, Yeah, so I mean, like uh, Princeton uh, decided to stop naming its its one of its schools after Woodrow Wilson, and people are uh, tearing down statues of uh of of who Junipero Serra there is one I think torn down in um I think there's one torn down in uh San Francisco I believe or it was uh uh well there's one yeah, yeah there is one uh Junipero Serra statue destroyed at the California State Capitol there have been statues of Christopher Columbus that have been just basically defaced and torn down um yeah this is this is all yeah. these are all good things and, yeah and and it's important to understand Columbus was not like all those Columbus statues are like from the forties and fifties yeah. or even you know a lot of them are actually from the nineties when in nineteen ninety two uh the u s in coordination with the King of Spain had held a lot of nice little celebrations about the five hundredth anniversary of Columbus, and that's that is when the city of Columbus got its nice little replica Santa Maria, which they, you know, the the Columbus City Council makes a lot of dumb decisions. But when they moved it out because they wanted to redo the river, they were at least smart enough to not put that back in. Um, but, you, you know, Unipro Serra is about white people 
needing to you know develop this settler history even though like Junipero Serra has nothing to do with the United States of America it is still like oh yes you know history on this continent has to start with white people that's the way America works I mean it's literally America Americo Vespucci um and so you know a lot of this stuff is like retro it's not like ancient you know or even like centuries old monuments or something that is like a living part of history though even then i wouldn't really care like all those plantation monuments i don't care those like old plantations that got turned into museums i wouldn't care if they all got burned down i'm not saying i'm not advocating anyone should do it you know but i we wouldn't, wouldn't care. Lo- yes we wouldn't we would not lose sleep at night if yeah. that happened you know all the, a lot of confederate statues were put in in the 60s i mean even the even the stars and bars like the image of the confederate flag that wasn't the confederate flag that was used during the civil war it was like a naval ensign that then like you know uh clan types you know repurposed because they thought it looked cool um all of this stuff are reactionary forces reactive reactively or retroactively going back into history and finding the things that they believe support their current agendas and then holding them up as you know this is part of our nation's history and if you attack it then you attack history you know history is not i mean it's you know it is you can't change it in the sense of like there are the established written accounts of what happens but statues and all that kind of stuff memorials all that stuff are not test like totems of history they are a current society deciding which parts of their history they want to value and for most of its history america wanted to value the bloodthirsty genocidal conquest of bourgeois settlers and that's why there's all these statues to them you know, that's, and, like, they all are fucking ugly. Like, on aesthetic grounds, they should all go. Also, just, like, why need statues? Honestly, Castro didn't let any, didn't want any statues built of him because he, you know, he understood that, like, that just create it turns men into gods. And it's, like, there's no point, really, in doing that. You can create all sorts of sculptures, public art stuff that honors, like, heroes of resistance. I mean, you can, you know, I would love to see, like, a statue of Little Turtle in Columbus, instead of Christopher Columbus, Little Turtle was a, I think, Shawnee military commander who inflicted one of the biggest defeats the United States, it was the biggest defeat the United States military had ever seen up until that point, and I think it was the biggest one until Little Bighorn. You know, if we're going to build statues, let's build statues of people like that. But it's like, uh, what? No, just get rid of all of them. I don't care. Lincoln... Washington, hell, everyone was crying about Grant, but like, you know, even if Grant like actually was okay in the sense that he supported Reconstruction and also all the stereotypes about him being an alcoholic were all just like revisionist Confederate historians, you know, trying to make, trying to justify their own bullshit. um, He still like did plenty of massacring of indigenous people. Fuck all of them. Like, that's the thing about America is like the history itself it's just so fucking blood soaked and, you know, violent that it's just like, why? Like, there's no need to honor it. I mean, if you don't like your history, make new ones. That's what, you know, revolutions are about is like rejecting 
you know, the implications, the consequences of that history creating a new chance for this group of people or this country to chart new history. So it isn't implicated by all those ghosts of the past. And when people are like, oh, well, nobody, you know, it's not perfect, but it's our country. It's like, okay, no, that's like, that's just moral cowardice. You're saying like, because somebody else some in some other place did something bad that like, it's okay for us to honor murderers and rapists and genocide heirs. It's no, fuck that. Like, we don't have to build statues to anyone. Like, no statues. How about that? You know, like Islamic art style. Maybe just no depictions of humans, okay? Like, I think America's lost, like, its human depiction privileges for a while, maybe. How about that, okay? You people want to be babies about it. Yeah, and, like, all the thing about, like, these statues are not history. Like, they're part of... <laughs> They're symbols, and symbols are powerful. And I think that's yeah. important to understand is that, like, these statues don't function as artifacts of history. Because, yeah, like, a lot of the, especially a lot of the Confederate statues, they were built during a time of Jim Crow to scare black people. Mm-hmm. So it, they were not They're like. Instruments of terror. Right, exactly. And that, and that is key because statue, like, statues and, and myths and symbols, particularly symbols, they, they are part of. Um, narrative historiography and myth making like that's really what it is like there's there's a myth about america that america tells to itself and tells to its citizens and these statues are part of that um that myth about america that it's this myth that like oh it's a um nation of immigrants that believes in democracy and no matter how imperfect that, it is, yeah. it is always on this eternal march to um, racial democracy, yeah. like racial democracy, like democracy, racial harmony, all men are created equal. Because every, everyone knows that the United States of America was the only time in history where people of different ethnic groups like lived together. That had never been thought of before and had never existed anywhere in the world until the United States. Everyone knows that, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not like the Mali Empire had like different ethnic groups under 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 its yeah. control. I mean, like the yeah, it's not like you know, or even like fuck. Look at the the reign of Genghis Khan throughout yeah. Asia. Like right, like because everyone in Asia is the same. Like there's no diversity of different ethnic groups throughout the Asian continent, right? Under yeah. so yeah, like obviously the United States is the only. Uh, civilization in which like different ethnic groups and nations of people live under one system yeah because every yeah. single civilization is somehow it. like c- culturally homogenous i want to i want to read this um passage from dr amos wilson's book called the falsification of african Consci- consciousness uh eurocentric history psychiatry and the politics of white supremacy because what he brings out here gets into basically european historiography and how basically it's a tool of propaganda essentially so i'm going to read a couple passages from this and then sort of tie it into what we're talking about um he says an effective propagandist doesn't want to tell too many big lies too many obvious lies he wants to tell the truth in a sort of way that gets him where he wants to go we have to recognize that european history writing is an institution the way any other discipline is an institution And the function of institutions in any oppressive society is to maintain the status quo. 
I don't I don't care what institution we we may talk about, whether we talk about the family institution, the criminal justice institution, the economic institution, the religious institutions, the health establishment, the education institutions, they all have one thing in common in a Euros in a Eurocentric oppressive system. To maintain the status quo and to maintain uh and to maintain African people in oppression. The European writing of history is in tandem with everything else European, and its purpose is ultimately the same, to maintain European power and domination. And then here's, here's another part. Um, uh, European historiography functions to maintain repression. Often the, often the person represses painful information that threatens his equ equilibrium because he may be profiting by, he, he may, because he may be profiting by the lies he tells himself and other others the european profits by the lies he tells the false perceptions and consciousness he creates in himself and others therefore truth in a more realistic history threatens these gains his self-esteem and vision of who he is and what he is is maintained through the projection of his history as mythology that's one of the functions of mytho of mythology to maintain to maintain self-esteem the European projection of history not only serves to drive out and repress truth, but also to maintain the inflated European ego. And I would also, in this sense, re replace European with American, and the oh, pretty yeah. much it, it would be pretty much the same thing. Like these statues function as rewrite rewriting of history and mythology. So in a sense, like okay, like it's not like that people are telling 100% lies about say Junipero Serra or Woodrow Wilson or or anyone else the point is to rewrite history in a way that inflates the collective american national ego and american mythology about itself so if you believe like in the myth that america is fundamentally a good nation and despite its flaws is marching toward some sort of democratic harmony then it's it's easier to rationalize having a statue of columbus a statue of junipero Serra, um buildings named after people like woodrow wilson or even a fucking play yes. about alexander hamilton with people of color this is all about rewriting of history to maintain the myth of America. But the thing is, is like, in order to maintain the myth of America, you have to repress and sanitize certain brutal realities and facts about America. So when it comes to Hinebro Serra, you paint him in a good light, but you repress and whitewash uh, his brutalities and the brutalities of the California mission system against Native Americans. When it comes to Woodrow Wilson, oh, okay, he he, uh, you know, he believed in uh, international democracy, but then you repress information about um, him being a, a segregationist, him um, uh, having the film *Birth of a Nation* uh, screened at the White House, uh, his role in the Palmer raids, and also like yeah. the the repression of of radicals at the time that preceded COINTELPRO, because before there was COINTELPRO, like. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover really got his um, yeah, J. start. J. Edgar Hoover, Wilson. yeah, he actually goes back to the initial Red Scare, which is yeah. nuts. Um, yeah, before we move into Hamilton or as a bridge to it, I will say that there also are were just like so many just straight up lies. I mean, I don't know if there's a country that lies to itself more than America does. I mean, oh, yeah, pound I mean, for the, pound. 
the Iraq War is like yeah. probably one of the most recent and egregious examples. But yeah, there's several. But others. I mean, yeah. the cherry tree shit, like the yep, like like just the dumbest shit, just the dumbest, absolute, most pathetic attempts at like basically forming, you know. I mean, even the idea that the founding fathers were like these luminaries and geniuses. I mean, they were really just a bunch of like petty bouge, like motherfuckers who like were upset that the crown wanted their cut and wouldn't let them take over the whole continent. The idea that they were motivated by any sort of like actual like ideals and that like this was an idealistic nation. Look, this is why I think the biggest case for historical materialism you know, the practice of Marxism is America because it is just battery acid through all the lies. When you actually look at, like, what were the material mechanisms and functions and developments of production that motivated, like, the axes of American history, like, then all, all of that high school, schoolhouse rock shit, all, it just becomes completely irrelevant. Like, it means nothing like it was always about power and money you know like it was about and power money and just narcissism just pure delusion and combining those into a nice toxic mix that spread itself to all corners of the globe and has never really faced any consequences for doing so you know yet so yeah yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, there's so many, uh, I mean, look at slavery. I mean, like, even in 2020, um, I mean, there are, I mean, there's a there's an NPR study that, uh, well, it wasn't NPR, it was an article about basically how, um, uh, like, it's hard to teach particularly, yeah, so there's an article in um, NPR, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the biggest NPR fan, but this is like and one NPR, of the... NPR is state-owned propaganda, okay, liberals? Yeah. Before you ever talk about RT or, heaven forbid, tell us or just remember that NPR is state-owned propaganda. So this, uh, this article is about a um, study by the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, and the, the title of the article is Why Schools Fail to Teach Slavery's Hard History. Um, and... You know, and, and 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 students are are basically being taught shit like, oh, the reason why the South seceded from the Union was to preserve state right, states' rights and shit. Um, and part of part of the reason that this article points out why it's um, oh, this is what the study point out. So like, uh, there, so there are key problems with the way slavery is presented to students. Um, so one is textbooks and teachers tend to accentuate the positive. Uh, slavery is often described as a southern problem. Um, slavery dependent on the ideology of white supremacy, and teachers shouldn't try to tackle the former without discussing the latter. And then too often the, rep- the report says, the varied lived experience of enslaved people is neglected. Um, so there's all kinds of ways, and one of the reasons why it's difficult, um, let's see... Oh, there's it, it brings up two accounts of uh, uh, teachers who um, talked about basically basically teaching the hard history and the facts about slavery makes white students uncomfortable. So here's like two passages that yeah. I think uh, I'll, I'll, I'll mention. I'll mention these and then we can kind of move on. Um, and, and we wouldn't want to make students uncomfortable in learning environments. Um, yeah, that is, you know, supposedly 
all of the well, well we, we will get to the harper's letter but all these free speech advocates that are all about you know learning is supposed to challenge you i mean okay but it, when it comes to teaching the reality of slavery no that, that makes yeah. the kids too upset uh so here's one teacher although i teach it through the lens of injustice just the fact that it was a widely accepted practice in our nation seems to give the concept of inferiority more weight in some students eyes like if it happened then it must be true sometimes it gives students the idea to call black students slaves or tell them to go work in the field because of the because of the lack of representation in textbooks so when students see themselves or their black classmates only represented as slaves in textbooks that affects their sense of self and how other students see them this is that was from a, a teacher in california and then this is from a teacher in maine um oh they're covering both uh peter you're in maine i'm in california yeah. so they're covering there you go representation a teacher said I find it painful and embarrassing as a white male to teach the history of exploitation, abuse, discrimination, and outrageous crimes committed against African Americans and other minorities over many centuries, especially at the hands of white males. How about you try living that shit? I'm pretty glad yeah. that's way worse <laughs> than trying to fucking teach it. I also find it very difficult to convey the concept of white privilege to my white students. While some are able to begin to understand this important concept, many struggle with or actively resist it. Resist it. Uh, and then there's a, a, a Jackson Katz, a history teacher at Wellesley High School in Wellesley, uh, Massachusetts, said, When you bring up racism, kids start getting really defensive, thinking that they're to blame. To feel comfortable, you need to, you need to have a really good classroom climate where students feel that they are not being blamed for what happened in the American past, where they don't feel shame about it. It is 100% not their fault that there is racism in this country, but it will Except be their for the fault. the racist kids. <laughs> right. It will be their fault if they don't do anything about it in the next 20 years. How about it's their fault if they don't do anything, do anything about it right fucking now? Fuck them kids. Any, um, <laughs> but it's like, I mean, this, this, is, this, is, this is why it's hard. This is why it's hard. Yeah. Like in, even in K-12 through schools throughout the country, it's hard to teach the 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 ugly but honest history about slavery is because it makes white students uncomfortable and defensive and so as you can tell from these teachers even they have to sugarcoat sh certain things so this is all yeah. part of again it's it's a, all a part that's why i brought up the um amos uh amos wilson passages that like history has to be rewritten in, in a way to further perpetuate the myth of America, because America itself benefits from it. Yeah. Right. Uh, because it's able to maintain, it, it gives legitimacy to its its imperial domination. And also, this kind of history rewriting, it inflates the egos of white people. And that's, you know, what we cannot do. We can't hurt right. white people's feelings and egos. And as you can see here, especially by what these teachers said, one of, one of their problems is is the feelings and the egos of, of white students. Um, yeah. and, and and that's what these statues, what they're part of, is that rewriting history and telling a myth that makes America feel good about itself and that it also makes white people and collectively white America feel good about itself rather than ask the hard questions and face up and, and take some collective responsibility so, yeah. about about the... On not just the past violence, but the ongoing violence uh, committed against black people and other non-white people. Yeah, I mean, first, yeah, I will also say that I can understand 
how getting a bunch of kids in Maine to understand the concept of white privilege might be a heavy lift because that's who the whiteness on that place occupies <laughs> it. Uh, total frequency, total bandwidth domination, total frequency, dom- total spectrum domination. That's the phrase on all spectrums is just radiates whiteness. Um, but yeah, in terms of myth making, uh, how about myths set to, you know, some hot show tunes that were streamed on Disney plus. And admittedly, we didn't have this podcast when the first, uh, set of Hamilton discourse came (laughs) out, but we are here now. And, uh, why don't you go first, Adam? Uh, I'm just going to admit, I have not seen Hamilton, and I refuse to see it because there's this, just, ugh, this idea that, like, it's woke and hip to have a founding father (laughs) responsible for fucking slavery and and genocide, just rewrite it as, like, oh, we're just going to make all the founding fathers, all this group of old, rich, white men who, or slave owners and fucking violent colonizers make them all be people of color and that's just gonna be like and then oh like have it be like a spoken word like rap thing like wow that's it's the ultimate like is it's 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 like the best way to get white liberals to jump on to white supremacy and imperialism without openly embracing it explicitly yeah like, this is this is like another part of myth making like it's beyond like you know conservatives dry humping confederate statues is taking founding fathers and making them woke you know and yeah. then that's like so it's on one hand conservatives are like we gotta we gotta protect fucking statues of robert e lee and liberals are like actually we should just uh we should just make a play about yeah. um thomas jefferson but uh make him latino and yeah. then oh that that's just that that's sort of like how that's bipartisan white supremacy right there so i just refuse to see it it's just there's just something about it it's just like it's bullshit and then some people are like oh well you know like is it is it's not revolutionary enough for you, you there's so many fucking stories you could tell you could tell yeah. first of all you know what would be cool is a play or a musical about the haitian revolution or about nat turner or about gusper yanga or about like there's so many other amazing narratives especially if you're going to set it in the context of colonial america the colonial americas like stories about like you know indigenous rebellions slave rebellions uh uh, there's so many nuanced stories that you can look at that are quote unquote hashtag woke but are actually stories that are interesting do not perpetuate white supremacy but are fucking amazing like stories of slave rebellions are cool and that's something that yeah. we should all, it's, it's especially like during a time now, like people can take inspiration from those, from those heroic rebellions and other, other types of stories set in the context of, again, colonial Americas. So I, I just, I just refuse to see it. And I just, it's it, this, the premise of it always just bugged me. Um, but I've been seeing more left-wing critiques of Hamilton, which is, is pretty refreshing because beforehand it was like, Oh, if you watch Hamilton, uh, you're woke now, which is just yeah, just, yeah. Fuck that. I all right. I you know I always tell the truth on this podcast, and the truth is I've listened to the Hamilton. I've never seen it, but I've listened to the Hamilton soundtrack far more times than I might be comfortable admitting. Um, when it first came, I, look, a lot of people who hate Hamilton just hate musicals in general. I do actually like a lot of good music musicals like Vita company um 
was another Sweeney Todd. I love musicals. I love Sondheim and all this stuff. Um, but so, you know, any new musical that's like a hit, I'll check it out, I guess. Um, but before we get into that, did you know that Immortal Technique and Lin-Manuel Miranda went to the same high school at the oh, same time? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, that immortal agree. technique bullied Lin Manuel Miranda, famously I heard about putting that. him in a trash can. Uh, yeah, I do think I about, about I do that. think about that when trying to disentangle the politics of Hamilton, because Lin Manuel Miranda, whose father worked for Ed Koch, I believe, uh, he's yeah, I mean he's not like from the from the barrio really. I mean he's from the Bronx, but like he's a middle class kid. Um, he yeah, he's very much like. He does know how to talk to white people, and it, it this is like it is a show that is like perfectly attuned to like the white liberal imagination. But it's just, I mean, some of the songs are catchy the first time around, but a lot of it is really like you can tell, you know, he he really identified with the character of Alexander Hamilton with the idea of a scrappy guy from an island coming to America to uh you know write his destiny right and you can through coloni- yeah. through colonization and theft and all that yes right? yeah right but lin-manuel miranda is doing the same thing except writing his destiny through song about those same things um and there's you know because he tries to be like do you know he tries to do a little uh i don't know camp's not the right word but kind of like hiding in plain sight like there's a whole period there's a whole part in i don't remember which song i think it's shot all right, throw away my shot or whatever. He's like, when are these colonies going to rise up? When are these colonies going to rise up? But, like, honestly, like, <laughs> yeah, the dude's from Puerto Rico, and, he, like, he's, like, <laughs> very much in that kind of comprador class. He's not supporting Puerto Rican self-determination by any means. Um, he, you know, and even the rap stuff is, like, it is just the most facile, like, 90s references. It's not... Like, I mean, yeah, he loves, I'm sure he loved the hip hop of the 90s when he grew up, but it's not, you know, and I even listened to some of the Hamilton mixtape and it was dumb. Um, it That would <laughs> try to be a little more like politically, you know, engaged in the current uh, moment, but it still is just like a lot of stupid liberalism. Like one of the whole, th- one of the things is uh, that there's a song called the 10 Dual Commandments and like, you know. <sighs> If you if you know about Biggie, then you get the reference and like so. Then there's like the <sighs> you know there's the cool white liberals who are able to afford the two thousand dollar tickets or whatever who are like oh ten dual commandments that's like ten crack commandments. Then they get to explain it to their square friends. They get to cackle when that song comes up. For, you know, it's a lot of dumb stuff like that. Um, but I suppose there are. Um, some overlaps between Lin-Manuel Miranda and Alexander Hamilton in the sense that I think they both vastly overestimate their own abilities. Like, he tries to portray Hamilton as, like, you know, the one good founding father or whatever because he was, like... Because he didn't own as many slaves. Like, he still owned slaves, but he only owned, like, two instead of, like, 200, like Jefferson did. Oh, whatever. ooh, wow. Makes yeah. me feel so well, good. Well, you know. Yeah, and he was, like, kind of... He was against it in the sense that, like, there were competing visions. You know, the United States, like, in its early days was not a unified nation in any respect. So I, I just, I just want to pause right here. Just imagine the, the spectacle of someone who... Um, I mean, I know Lin-Manuel is uh, is Puerto Rican, but like, 
I mean, Puerto Rico, first of all, is still, you know, definitely like a colony yeah, of the yeah. United States. And also, Puerto Rico has a history of slavery similar to the United States. So, if if you're someone who is is black and has slave descendant lineage, just a spectacle of someone of that lineage playing the people who enslaved your ancestors. Like, I, I don't, like, what the fuck is up with that? Like, what, uh, like, what? He, I'll tell you what's up bu- with it. It's bullshit. That's what the fuck is, it is. Is that Lin-Manuel Miranda was doing a favor for all of his black friends in the musical theater industry because good roles are hard to come by. And so he wrote it so he could give work to all of them. And so actually that's why he's a hero. So um, so basically, you have to throw any sense of like black pride and black dignity aside, basically, right? Like that's the rules uh, of, of yeah. Of I mean, the to become media. like a Broadway actor or Hollywood actor, you, you have to accept you're going to play a lot of fucked this up is, roles. This is why I just couldn't stomach it. It's just like, look, I mean, if you have any sense of black pride and black di- dignity and, and knowing your your actual fucking lineage, like I couldn't stomach like wanting to. Like, yeah. told like let's get the founding fathers, the people who enslaved our ancestors, and like make them woke. Oh, and make oh them, no, but, make them black. But, here, and, like, but here's the, the thing: it's a very like they they address slavery a lot, and there's like the you know one of the key moments is a rap battle between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, where he oh, like totally yeah he totally ethers Jefferson about how many slaves he has, you know, and <laughs> what the fucking shit. Oh, oh yeah. It's, <laughs> this um, is bullshit <laughs> it's it's yeah it's i mean some of the songs you know are kind of good i don't know look look we all have look we all come into this space as incomplete people with our own things to work through and that was something that i worked through later than i would like to admit um but you know okay two things before we before i get into some some quotes from the actual Alexander Hamilton. Uh, one is that he tries to make like the American Revolution as this time of like young hotheads eager to prove themselves, but like all those, most of the minds behind it were all just like powder wigged, you know, rich fops that you know if they weren't Southern aristocrats, then they were all like rum merchants or some shit. I mean, it wasn't like like you know, the Black Panthers or anything like that at all. It wasn't any kind of like young group of idealistic lefty revolutionaries. It was all just a bunch of people who were like, man, I mean, they were upset at the crown, but it was like, man, we we really just want to make more money and the crown's not letting us do that. And so we need to like come together so we can like make more money and like take over more land. And that's why... You know what? It's still a bourgeois revolution, but that's why it happened. That's why it existed. Read the whole Declaration of Independence. Um, The other thing is that, like Hamilton, not. I mean, he was very extremely anti-democratic. So the idea of like liberals who claim to support things like American democracy to then like you know have their you know unspecified genital organs engorged by uh by alexander hamilton is just insane he wanted the president to serve for life that was one of his things um he they yeah lin-manuel miranda left that out but he basically wanted like a dictator um but here i got to you know i actually went through the federalist papers at one point in my life and some quotes stuck out um and here's the here's some galaxy brain takes 
from a one Alexander Hamilton. This one is Federalist Paper 26, in which he's addressing the, you know, pathetic concerns that, like, having a standing army, you know, because that was actually a big concern at the time is that, you know, kind of like the more libertarian element, like the kind of small settlers, you know, who believed in, like, Jeffersonian democracy or whatever of, like, small landholders thought that like a standing army would represent tyranny um and he says basically schemes to subvert the liberties of a great community require time to mature them for execution an army so large as seriously to menace these liberties could only be formed by progressive augmentations which would suppose not merely a temporary combination between the legislature and executive but a conspiracy but a continued conspiracy for a series of time. Is it probable that such a combination would exist at all? Is it probable that it would be persevered in and transmitted along through all the successive variations in a representative body, which biennial elections would naturally produce in both houses? Is it presumable that every man, the instant he took his seat in the National Senate or House of Representatives, would commence a traitor to his constituents? And to his country, can it be supposed that there would not be found one man discerning enough to detect so atrocious a conspiracy or bold enough to apprise his constituents of their danger? There actually was. His name was Paul Wellstone. He got killed. Um, Yeah. (laughs) If such presumptions can fairly be made, there ought at once to be an end of all delegated authority. The people should resolve to recall all the powers they have heretofore parted with out of their own hands and divide themselves into as many states as there are counties in order that they be, may be able to manage their own concerns in person. So literally, how Alexander Hamilton, while trying to like dunk on some anti-federalists, just actually completely prophesied the rise of the military-industrial complex <laughs> as like... <laughs> Oh, come on. You really think that would happen? Come on. You got nothing to worry about. Another great one um, is in Federalist 35, where he it's Federalist 35 is mostly about taxes, but he has to get in this little aside where he says um, where basically the one of the anti-Federalist concerns is that not all classes of people would be represented in the House of Representatives. And he says the idea of an actual representation of all classes of the people by persons of each class is altogether visionary. That's not a good thing. Um, Mm. Unless it were expressly provided in the Constitution that each different occupation should send one or more members, the thing would never take place in practice. Mechanics and manufacturers will always be inclined, with few exceptions, to give their votes to merchants in preference to persons of their own professions or trades. These discerning citizens are well aware that the mechanic and manufacturing arts furnish the materials of the of mercantile enterprise and industry. Many of them, indeed, are immediately connected with the operations of commerce. They know that the merchant is their natural patron and friend, and they are aware <laughs> that however great the confidence they may justly feel in their own good sense, their interest can more effectually be promoted by the merchant than by themselves. Uh, the and, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> So, so those are the galaxy so they, brain takes so they, Alexander Hamilton, and this is the yeah, this is who they chose to this, this, make a musical off of. Yeah, this is composed. this is. I mean, yeah, what happened? Because what happened was like he had made like a moderately successful musical called In the Heights, I guess, which like was about like you know the singing, dancing, 
colored people of Washington Heights, you know, Broadway people love those kind of musicals. Um, but then he just picked up a book about book in an airport that was a biography of Alexander Hamilton. He just got so taken up with it, but he never seemed to actually care what Alexander Hamilton's actual policies that he advocated yeah. were. And mm-hmm. so like, if like, like compared with that, and honestly, you guys, you don't need to read the Federalist Papers, really. They're all really quite boring. But, you know, if you ever, if you have like some history nerd, you know, reactionary relative or whatever, then you can read the Federalist Papers to dunk on them because there's a lot of self-owning in them. They're, they're very against democracy, um, which is the whole fucking point is like, why venerate these people? They were against everything you claim to stand for and believe in. They all suck. Get like, they're like, yeah, fine. Keep like a history book so we know what happened. That's good. But like, there's no need to put any mo- to make any monuments to these people. Like, we will wash all of it away. You know, with the new tide. Do you like? Do people understand like what the actual definition of iconoclasm is? It's knocking down statues. You yeah. know, and if Americans love to imagine themselves as like iconoclasts marching to the beat of their own drum or whatever and then like they're honestly one of like the most sheeple type people in the world they are like so incredibly cowed and they just eat like just the most atrocious of all lies just they eat it all right up and especially the liberals honestly i think like a lot of reactionaries i mean some of them are genuine idiots some of them are malicious liars i think some of them like understand that it's crap but they just are so misanthropic that they don't care but yeah but liberals they really like are completely incapable of ever admitting that they've been duped about anything because their whole thing is that they are the intellectual and moral moral authority um and so the idea that they're just like they just don't understand the situation is just beyond them and you know with that shall we transition to the last um discourse related topic of the day oh yeah this stupid harper's letter yeah um uh, yeah i i saw it and so harper's wrote so there's all these um uh signatories to it including like noam chomsky um when uh, when marsalis who honestly forget him he when marsalis does hella respectability politics and like talks shit about hip-hop for so long Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Gloria Steinem. I mean, like, there's all there's all Gloria David. Steinem CIA asset that's proven. Uh, David from um, Axis of Evil guy. So literally wrote the speech. Uh, I believe Luminary and Renaissance man Matty Glacius signed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, J- yeah. J.K. Rowling. Uh, Francis Fukuyama. Uh, man who is never wrong about anything. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, um, uh, who was definitely on some Epstein flights. Yep. Um, a lot of, a lot of people. So JK, basically like JK Rowling. Uh, yeah. Who's a turf. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very <laughs> no turfy. Tur- notoriously <laughs> turfy now. Yep. Uh, so, so this, this I'll, this is like the language of it seems very generic, but like, I think the sub, the sort of the context and subtext is just just stupid um so it says our cultural institutions are facing a moment of trial okay powerful powerful 
powerful protests for racial and social justice are leading to overdue demands for police reform, along with wider calls no, for greater... there, no no demands for police reform. Harper, that's you're just printing lies. Nobody's right. None yeah, of those people are calling demanded for... reforms, defunding De- and abolition. Like that's been at the top. Anyway. Um, along with wider calls for greater equality and inclusion across our society, not least in higher education, journalism, phil- philanthropy, and the arts. But this needed reckoning has also intensified a new set of moral standards and political commitments that tend to weaken our norms of open debate and tolerance of differences in favor of ideological conformity. As we applaud the first development, we also raise our voices against the second. The forces of illiberalism are gaining strength throughout the world and have a powerful ally in Donald Trump, who represents a real threat to democracy. And so the base is like, oh, free exchange of ideas, blah, 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 blah. But like, here's the thing is like, um, first of all, people like, um, if you guys, if you guys are unfamiliar, so people like George Chikrelomar, uh, Steven Saleta, and um, Dr. Tommy J. Curry have all, well, first of all, Marr and Saleda basically lost their jobs. And, yeah. and Saleda was a tenure professor for basically Saleda, who's a Palestinian American. He lost his job for basically criticizing Israel publicly on social media. Doc, uh, George Chikarello Marr lost his job uh, for basically just criticizing white supremacy. And he made a he made a joke. He made a joke about um white genocide he's basically like he said uh all i want for christmas is white genocide it was a tongue-in-cheek comment but it's like you know if academia is about open exchange of ideas and free speech um if you're a professor what you say on social media like i mean you know the the institution of academia should be a little bit more like okay yeah we're willing to who who cares you can say what he wants but george kicherello mars main sin was always like defending chavismo and Chavez and the Bolivarian yeah. Revolution of Venezuela. That's why they wanted him gone. Yeah, and and Stephen Saleda obviously is very pro boycott, divestment, sanctions of Israel. Um, and then Dr. Tommy J. Curry, um, he he. He had he to leave the country. Yeah, he left the country, and he faced death threats for his comments on, um, basically, like Tommy, Dr. Tommy J. Curry is very outspoken against uh white supremacy and racism. Um, and then I think Irony Osei Frangpong almost lost his, um, he's a graduate student, and he, he almost lost his, he was very close to uh, losing his um, teaching at TA job. And so I, none of these people, like if we're going to talk about free speech, none of them have spoken out against it. Also, yeah. people like, um, uh, let, let me, so both um, Mar and Salada pointed this out that like a lot of the people who have signed onto that list have personally been responsible in getting people like Mar and Salada fired. I believe yeah. um, it was uh, uh, Kari, Carrie Nelson, also Barry Weiss uh, when she was <laughs> when she was when she she was who was a New York Times uh, columnist when she was a student at Columbia. Um, she went after Arab scholars who criticized Israel and basically tried to get them fired. So, um, yeah, like a lot of people on this list have records of basically personally going after left-wing academics that they don't like and, and basically getting them getting them fired. So they, they weren't complaining about free speech then, but now yeah. they say like, oh, free speech is under threat. And like, like here's like this whole, the whole like cancel culture free speech 
um, discourse is just very disingenuous. I'm, I'm not arguing against the whole like principle of free speech. My I, point I, is that like, I, I do argue against it. I, I take the Maoist philosophy, which is no investigation, no right to speak. Having an opinion that's uninformed and idiotic and possibly harmful does not give you the right to say it out loud where other people can hear it. That's that's my opinion. Right. And and like to me that's that's not even the issue. Like the real issue is that like this is not really about free speech. I think what's wow. really going on is basically people in these comfortable journalistic and academic positions. What's really going on is like ever since the 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 murder of George Floyd, there's been more calls within journalism in um in academia to basically change the institutions in terms of how they treat black people, non-whites, and people from other marginalized identities, particularly in terms of, of pay and internal treatment within these institutions. There has been more pressure to be like, okay, you know, the institution of media and journalism should do a better job in terms of pay and treatment. Um, and also representation for black writers and other non-white writers. And also like certain things people are just not going to put up with, like certain shit about like, like, Things that, that, you know, stuff that people like um, fucking Andrew Sullivan want to say about race and IQ, like, certain people, like, are going to be like, you know what, we're not going to tolerate that shit. We're going to push yeah. back against it. It's not like people are calling for Sullivan to be fired, but like, hey, look, like, we're going to challenge you on this shit. So even on that, like, people are like, these people are like, oh, this is a threat to my free speech. No, you just can't handle fucking criticism yeah. from people who don't look like you. And also... You know, the, a lot of these people are like tenured academics and have comfortable jobs. I don't see them standing in solidarity with um, writers and graduate students who are trying to organize fucking unions within those institutions. Yeah, honestly, it's, they're usually some of the biggest <laughs> obstacles. Right, exactly. So if we're going to talk about like free speech and, you know, threat to freedom exchange of ideas, actually ch really challenging those institutions and those practices those types of practices are threats to free speech. Like, if you have academic institutions and journalistic institutions whose job is to uh, disseminate discourse in media, if you have practices within those institutions that are discriminatory, that do mistreat and underpay black people, also uh, gay, uh, queer folks and trans folks and women and, and pretty much anyone of any kind of marginalized identity and also class background as well people who don't yeah. come from like well-off backgrounds and don't have like you know mommy and daddy to rely upon to you know in case they want to do like a free internship in new york city um you know like addressing those kinds of practices that um basically put those marginalized people uh at the short end of the stick like those practices i think are a threat to this idea of free speech because if you care about the principle of free speech then you would want institutions that are truly internally free of internalized oppression and inequality but i, I don't see these people really speaking out against that no they, it, it seems like oh they're just mad that like grad students and some writers they're, on Twitter they're mad they're mad they're mad that like young people are talking back to them is right. really what all of it boils that's down all, to. That's all it is. That's all it is. It it's is. not about fucking free speech. It's just like an old guard generation of journalists and academics. Like, you know, they don't want like the, you know, a new generation who are just be like, you know, what, some of the stuff you guys have been saying, some of these new rules, they're kind of bullshit. We're going to challenge it. Yeah. They're like, no, no, don't fucking challenge me, my free yeah. well, speech. 
Well, the, yeah, I mean, the whole thing about it is, like, first of all, when you make your living off of writing, as you people are also lucky to do, and neither of us, like, have mm-hmm. had the opportunities to do so yet, um, like, you, like, it's not the same as, like, the government saying, like, you said something and that was illegal and therefore we're going to arrest you for saying it. Like, like, your ability to earn your living based off of words is dependent upon other people wanting to hear what you have to say. And, mm-hmm. like... When people start telling you that your ideas suck, like maybe that should be an indication that, oh, maybe some of my ideas suck and I should rethink them. Um. And, and also, you know, like their positions also rely on people under them yeah. being mistreated and under fucking paid. Yes. I'm going to repeat that again. Some of the some of the some of their positions rely upon a, a large num- large numbers of of writers and freelancers and graduate students baking yeah near poverty wages that's where their position relies on so if you care about free speech it would make sense to pay those people more so that they can make a living and so that those people can contribute to the discourse in this free exchange of ideas if you have a lot of working class people black people non-white people trans people if, if they're constantly at the short end of the stick and having to live on the edge of precarity that does have an impact yeah. on discourse and free speech. But I don't see that mentioned anywhere in this fucking letter. Yeah. Because a, that, that's not the issue they're concerned about because it, it doesn't impact their pockets. That's why. Yeah. they. I mean, they're worried about the fact that they have, like, you know, carried water for an indefensible system, you know, when they knew, like, what the reality of the system was. That's the whole thing about academics. They can't plead ignorance. And now people are like, hey... You carried water for this indefensible system for decades, and they're like, um, yeah, it's about, uh, don't cancel me. This is can- cancel culture's gotten out of control. Look, like, I don't know what it is people are complaining about in the sense of, like, through the quote unquote th- free exchange of ideas, we are using our words to communicate to you that your ideas are garbage, that yep. you have nothing to say, and that nobody should listen to you. And we and that is, you know, a free exchange of ideas like, yep, like it is very much this disciplinary thing where it's like, oh, you think you're hot and young. And it's like, okay, yeah, college students don't know a lot, but that's why they go to university so they can argue and like, you know, figure out what they think about the world. That's the point of institutions of higher learning. And it's just like that's like, yeah, part of that is challenging your professors. Part of that is being like, you know what, like we don't want to have like for free and open exchange of idea means like having to listen to charles murray then fuck that we're saying we've thought about it we've exchanged ideas freely and we've come to the conclusion that we don't want to listen to the fuck guy wrote the fucking bell curve we don't want him on our campus like like i don't understand like that is it that is the intellectual life that is the intellectual Mm -hmm. culture that is the tradition and so you're just upset that you're on the wrong end of it because there are people that are younger than you that don't have the cushy jobs that you do that are angry as fuck about what's going on. And they're telling you that you suck and you yeah. are upset about it. Um, and one, one of the signatories, by the way, I think is Carrie Nelson, uh, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign was also involved in getting Stephen Slater fired from his job. Yeah. So these people don't be- these a lot of these people don't truly believe in free speech. Like they really no. don't. Like this is not about upholding the principle of free speech. That's just a fucking that's I mean, just yeah, I mean, that's it, 
that's just a farce. I mean, it's just, yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, yeah. It's, I mean, when you're a communist, you've already accepted you don't have any rights to free speech or whatever. Like, you're, you know, you know, like, no, you'd never expect anyone's going to allow you to speak. Like, like, the, maybe if you guys ever had some actual ideas to actually threaten people in power, maybe you'd actually understand what the stakes are, but you don't. And, and also, like, look at, look at, like, I mean, there's been an increased number of car attacks against protesters since uh, the, the murder of George Floyd. So, like, there are bare, also, like, when it comes to free speech, how about the fact that the president oh. of the United States, Donald Trump, told football coaches that they should fire football players for kneeling during the national anthem? Someone who's yeah. a member that the highest echelons of government was telling a private business, the NFL, to fire players for exercising their right to free speech. So if they want to care about free, I would say the biggest threat to free speech is actually the far right. Like, yeah. like well, these well, people, they're not under siege by threats to free speech. They just aren't. I mean, maybe they they might get made uncomfortable, but in terms of like, you know, where the, the threat to free speech and where that hammer is going to hit the hardest, it's not going to be on them. It's no. not. Well, okay. Let's be let's be fair. Um, there were two precipitating incidents that led to the dissemination of this, you know, honorary and very literary letter by all these proud men and women of letters. Um, and one of them was the consequences that the New York Times editorial board faced for running Tom Cotton's little op-ed about how Trump should roll tanks in the streets in response to the george floyd protests and i mean like like what he was calling for is just pure pinochet shit so the mm -hmm. idea of like oh well you know let's have like a debate about whether or not we should be rounding up leftists and put them in sports stadiums i mean let's i mean look first of all they did do that in the sense that like they did detain protesters in jackie robinson stadium which was the ucla baseball stadium so like they were already doing pinochet shit it was just like oh we should we do more Pinochet shit? Let's have a debate about it. You know, let's have a free and exchange free exchange of ideas. And the other one was just a letter to the Linguistic Society of America calling for the removal of Steven Pinker. Um, Steven Pinker, aside from being just a completely trash person who supports evolutionary psychology, um, is like one was one of the biggest confidants of Jeffrey Epstein. Like the dude's a fucking predator. Like, no, like, irrespective of all of his terrible ideas, just like, no, he should, I mean, he shouldn't really be on dry land, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, also, like, I mean, I read he, he got it was, um, yeah, it was the American Linguistic Society. Basically, I'll, I'll actually put the letter because I read it. Basically, their point was that, like, they even said in the letter that they don't want to cancel um, Steven Pinker. What they said was that, like, a lot of the things that Steven Pinker was saying publicly on social media went against the principles of, of the linguistic society. That's what they said. So, you know, like, and, and you could, you know, disagree with, with the LSA's decision or not, but they put up... Um, yeah, like uh, six instances on social media where basically it wasn't even like about they disagree with him. They even said that a lot of the stuff he was saying was just straight up wrong and, and yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, falsifying. Like basically, yeah, like basically just hedging. Yeah, he well, he tried to claim that like black people weren't disproportionately killed by the police. I think right. was one of the things. Yeah, there were things that he said that they said that the LSA said that like he was basically spreading 
outright misinformation essentially like that's what the linguistic society of america said and they said that like you know and and they and they actually wrote a um a resolution that was agreed by all of them to basically take the issue of racial justice seriously within their own organization and so they said like well given what steven pinker said it violates the principles of the organization. So that's why they removed them. But they even said specifically in their letter that they don't mean to, um, yeah, they said, we want to note here that we have no desire to judge Dr. Pinker's actions in moral terms or claim to know what his aims are, nor do we seek to cancel Dr. Pinker or to bar him from participating in the linguistics and LSA communities. We do believe, we do however believe that the examples introduced above establish that Dr. Pinker's public actions constitute a pattern of downplaying the very real violence of systemic racism and sexism, and moreover, a pattern that is not above deceitfulness, misrepresentation, or the employment of dog whistles. So they're basically saying it's not it's not even like a political disagreement. Yeah. They're basically even, saying even, that he's he's being deceitful and misrepresenting information. But, but that's e- beyond a political disagreement. Even that's enough to like get all these people scared. I mean, it's exactly like the Gia Tolentino thing we talked about all those years past, um, where it's like, <laughs> look, these people understand that if one of them cancel culture is really nothing more than like people think facing consequences for the for their actions they understand that if one of them faces consequences and they all might face consequences because they're all implicated and so they have to band together to be like actually no one should ever face consequences for the for saying things in public you know like even though that's their job and you know they're empowered by institutions to basically be moral arbiters in many respects or you know the to define what is intellectually valid or invalid but let's also focus on the magazine itself, Harper's, you know, a <laughs> fair, I, I don't really read Harper's. I find it to be quite boring, but I was thinking about, you know, sometimes you read these kind of dipshit liberal publications that like, you know, they get just like fetishized, like doing third way stuff and always trying to triangulate. And you wonder, you know, what would these people have said like 150 years ago? Well, I looked it up because Harper's was established in 1850. And I looked up this. Um, so what this is, is um, in the run up to the 1860 election, um, Harper's, like it is today, firmly behind the Democratic Party. Democratic Party, of course, Stephen Douglas the Lincoln-Douglas debates, you know, defender of slavery, essentially. Um, and they were very, the Harpers basically printed like a very long essay by Stephen Douglas and where he outlined his position of popular sovereignty. So if you're wondering what the like milk toast reform is triangulating, co-opting liberals would have had to say about slavery in the 1850s, their mm-hmm. position was popular sovereignty, which was like, look, guys, like, yeah, slavery is like bad, but like, you know, we got a right to private property. So really what we need to do is let the states decide, you know, we need to make it we need to make the issue of slavery more democratic. So, you know, because the whole thing was like we're, you know, slavery was a big issue, but we weren't going to let it stop in the way of settler colonial expansion. We're taking all this territory. We're bringing in new states. And people want to know, can I bring my slaves to this state? 
and a lot of northerners were like no you can't do that like you you got like no more slavery you know and a lot of southerners were like that's an outrage there should be slavery everywhere because we actually think slavery is a great institution and the you know milk toast liberals were like what who fetishized compromise i mean there's obviously the infamous three-fifths compromise it's also the missouri compromise you know liberals been compromising for a very long time but you know they ran you know they uh the harpers you know was in a big was a big supporter of this because they just wanted to keep the union together so let me just i just took some choice quotes from this 32 page thing which you can find on the library of congress website um and i can put links to it uh before i forget so dr jo- tommy j curry what got him in trouble well, basically, some conservatives took out of context what he actually said, but his comments, he was talking about, um, oh, he, yeah, it was, it's, I think it, it was an, acknowledging that, like, white supremacy is a violent system and will cause. Well, he was talking specifically about black people defending themselves violently. Yeah. So yeah. he said, when we have this conversation about violence or killing white people, it has to be looked at in these kinds of historical terms. And the fact that we've had no one address like how relevant or and how solidified this kind of tradition is for black people saying, look, in order to be equal, in order to be liberated, some white people may have to die. I've just been immensely disappointed because what we look at week after week is national catastrophe after catastrophe where black people, black children are still dying. He's basically talking about, like, yeah, like, it's sort of, um, I guess you could, I mean, if you were to apply it to foreign policy, you can kind of, the equivalent would be like, oh, okay, like, what what drives, like, you know, armed Islamic militants to engage in acts of, like, you know, armed violence against, against like, you know, the United States, right? Um, so, it got taken out of context, and uh, Texas A&M didn't defend him. And so like, there was an interview he did with the Chronicle of Higher Education where he said um, that while there's a language of diversity uh-huh, that allowed the, inter- the university to hire a black professor, what Curry said, given the political inclinations of the administrators, they're not going to protect the black professor. So yeah, so you know, keep it keep that in mind. Like next time, like there are all these like journalists and academics, uh, hemming and hawing about free speech and diversity of ideas. Okay. Yes. All right. And we'll close out with some. I honestly didn't even make it through all of it because I already found because I found so many great quotes like in the first six pages. Um, one of them is this. This is this is and this is like the Harper's editorial board. This isn't like somebody writing for harper's like this is like what they would think our simple and plain proposition is that the legal owner of a slave or other chattel may go with it into a federal territory without forfeiting his title who denies the truth of this and upon what ground can it be controverted the reasons which support it are very obvious and very conclusive as a jurist and a statesman, Mr. Douglas ought to be very familiar with them. There was a time when he was supposed to understand them very well. Uh, dot, 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 dot. The federal constitution carefully guards the rights of private property against the federal government itself by declaring that it shall not be taken for public use without compensation nor without due process of law. Slaves are private property, and every man who has taken an oath of fidelity to the constitution is religiously morally and politically bound to regard them as such does anybody suppose that a constitution which acknowledges the sacredness of private property so fully 
would wantonly destroy that right, not by any words that are found on it, but by mere implication from its general principles, it might as well be asserted that the general principles of the Constitution gave Lane and Lane and Montgomery a license to steal horses in the Valley of the Osaki. I don't know what that last one meant, but it was Harper's idea of what a dunk was in 1859. Shows you how fucking lame these people are. And then getting into like why they are against Republicans and oh haha yeah so the they were also against the original abolitionism they all the people who are against uh police abolitionism if they were around that time they were also against regular abolition but you know look harper's doesn't support slavery because of racism they just support it because of the constitution very big difference okay so the republicans do not point to any express provision of the constitution nor to any general principle embraced in it, nor to any established rule of law which sustains their views. The ablest men among them are driven by stress of necessity, territorial slavery question, necessity of the territorial slavery question to hunt for arguments in a code revealed, unwritten, and undefined, which they put above the Constitution or the Bible and call it higher law. The ultra-abolitionists of New England do not deny that the Constitution is rightly interpreted by the Democrats as not interfering against slavery in the territories, but they disdain to obey what they pronounce to be, and they put this in square quotes, an agreement with death and a covenant with hell. So that's Harper's for you, all right? That is this, you know, famed American literary publication that is stood for, you know, the free and open exchange of ideas of you know, are slaves property or are they humans, you know, and what the, and what's more important is what does the Constitution say about this? You know, that's that's Harper's. OK, so honestly, all these fucking institutional liberals, all of liberalism can get fucked. Honestly, I don't like we don't care about any of it. And that's what all these cancel culture people understand. And that's what they're afraid of. But the problem is that we don't have to listen to them. We just we just don't. And the more they say bullshit, the less people will listen to them and the less power they will have and the less ability they will have to control any outcome. So maybe keep it up, y'all. Keep up all the hand-wringing and triangulation and the scolding because, like, you're just riding your way into irrelevance. Yep, and with that, that's also a good reason why you should support independent black political media like this one, Real Sankara Hours, because uh, we are not on that bullshit like Harper says and the people who signed it. Um, that's why, like, you know, I believe that I do think that uh, having worked in media and, and still write, I, I, I strongly believe, especially now in independent black media, because it gives us a platform to tell tell things that like uh tell the truth tell the truth that often gets suppressed by these institutions and also bring also in addition to telling the truth bring forward bring forward an analysis um that often gets overlooked and also that these kinds of white dominated liberal institutions just are not equipped to bring you so that's why um yeah you should support independent black media like this one Real Sankara Hours, www.patreon.com slash Real Sankara Hours. Again, it's patreon.com slash Real Sankara Hours. $5 a month gets you bonus episodes. We have like theory readings and, and other rantings and uh, also some 
uh, good exclusive interviews, uh, including um, an interview we did with someone at the Seattle Autonomous Zone and a member of the DSA, um, other other stuff. So yeah, like you know, uh, it support independent Black media. Um, that Harper's letter was stupid, but also I think to me it vindicates the need for independent um, alternative media uh, outlets because yeah, clearly those institutions. Um, yeah, I don't I don't care if they lose credibility because there are other uh, media outlets that are worth supporting. Yeah, I was just going to say. Um... There's, there are, we will obviously get into this more, but I feel like it's worth saying that, um, it, speaking of independent black media, that uh, we are joining sort of a new project, so there will be more content mm-hmm. for you guys to support if you want to briefly get into that. Yeah, Resistance Noir um, started, uh, was sort of spearheaded by uh, Andre Domis, who, who goes by, he's going by Q these days, but anyway, I was on a live stream with Lily from, uh, who's also part of Resistance Noir. We were on a Twitch stream, so we're going to be doing more of that. So yeah, I was on this... one last week. It was it was a great experience. Um, mm-hmm. We yeah we more more things are coming. So please stay tuned um, because we are we are not stopping. Like the more they do this shit, the more fired up we get. And, uh, you know, like, ain't none of this shit going away, so... Well, it just only vindicates what we're doing, basically. I mean, we'd be doing this with or without that Harper's Letter, but I think that Harper's Letter further vindicates the kind of work that we're doing. We we are the illiberal dangers coming to destroy your hallowed liberal institutions. So, if you want to witness the destruction, uh, subscribe. Yeah, so, um, anyway, uh, keep the faith... And stay dangerous. See ya. Peace.